Hey everybody, welcome to the show. This is Eric Wright, the host of your Disco Posse podcast, and we've got a really, really great episode coming up. But first, before we get started, I want to give a big shout out to our friends and supporters and the sponsors of this podcast, our very good friends over at Veeam Software. Everything you need for your data protection needs, trust me, you need this stuff. Whether it's going to be your cloud, whether it's going to be your cloud native, don't forget, you actually got to back that stuff up because there are persistent workloads out there. Wink, wink. At any rate, don't forget, cloud, bare metal, virtualization, you name it. Everything you need for your data protection needs. Did I mention that? Anyways, go to check it out. Go to vee.am forward slash Disco Posse, and you can uh, support our friends over there, and uh, they're really fantastic. That's why I actually love having them being a part of the show. Second piece, of course, if you want to wake up and feel the best in the most devilishly good way, then you want to make sure that you've got a devilishly good and tasty Diabolical Coffee in your hands. I'm very proud to be the co-founder of Diabolical Coffee, and I support this and many other podcasts, actually. So I'm a big fan of coffee and podcasting. So it's a great way to pair things up. So if you want to check it out, you can go to diabolicalcoffee.com. And if you use the code DiscoPosse at the checkout, you get a little bit of a bonus there. So make sure you go get that discount. Check it out. We've got some amazing cool swag. Send me a picture, and I would love to actually post it. We've got lots of great stuff. Follow us on Instagram. That's right. We're on the Insta. We're everywhere. So check that out. Uh, and then, of course, now on to the good stuff. I'm really, really proud because this was a great chance to really dive into some fun stuff and somebody who I'm going to have back on. Uh, Darren Hayner is actually the founder of uh, Fermentable, and he is just a really dynamic fellow. Uh, we had a great chat. Uh, he's doing some Rails development, uh, but he's just, just a really down-to-earth human, somebody I had a great time talking to. We nerded out about Ruby on Rails and lots of stuff, and anyways well worth it check it out plus a ton of stuff really about fermenting and beer science you're gonna love it enjoy hi everyone my name is darren hayner i'm the president and co-founder of fermentable and you're listening to the disco posse podcast Well, Darren, the we got a chance to start talking right before the mics went up, and I always I always laugh when I get this convergence of all the things I've ever experienced in life. When you meet somebody and you know I'm going to have an amazing conversation with this person. <laughs> <laughs> Number one, uh, you're doing really neat stuff in what your company is doing. Number two, you come from a really neat background in that. It's not an automatic fit necessarily. Uh, so we'll talk about what your technology background led you to, you know, the the brewing and the technology where those two things came together. Because uh, quite often as well, it's just the career spans a lot of different, you know, functions of our lives. So I love that your story brought those things together. Um, but, you know, anyways, you've you've got a really great story. And so before people get to know you, let's just give you a quick introduction Tell us about you, where we can connect with you online as well, if folks want to want to chat and and uh, and talk more about you, and then we'll we'll talk about fermentable and all the good stuff you're doing there. Uh, yeah, thanks, uh, thanks for the great intro, Eric. Um, you know, I am uh, 
I'm a founder of a software company, uh, a SaaS-based software company um, for breweries. Uh, I am a former brewer, um, and I am currently a technologist. So my uh, my company is is my side business actually uh, right now. <laughs> uh, so so yeah, I got a lot on my plate. <laughs> well, and I guess this is what's what I really enjoy uh, about the way that this stuff comes together. Because quite often when we when you hear people and they you can even sort of hear the way you describe yourself as a founder. It's almost like, yeah, I'm, I am a founder, but like you've, it's a real neat responsibility when you're getting ready to, you know, you're, you're building a company, you're building a platform and you're still maintaining, you know, day-to-day -day operations at another organization or a company, you know, people have families, all this, it's not an easy thing. Like just getting through your day as a founder is not easy, especially when you're in the balancing act of, of doing other things. But I, I think we should talk about Fermentable to start off because, you know, anybody, they're going to lock in on why this is pretty cool. <laughs> yeah, cool. So um, Fermentable is brewery management software. Um, we, we really target small breweries, um, which is really the, the largest section. <laughs> yeah, the irony that's uh, if you if you put them all together, there it's like the RC cola of co of you know. There's a lot of them, right? It's and if you yeah. took a look at the right. total size of the of the market, it's probably a, a pretty heavy percentage. Yeah, so our target audience is uh, I don't know the exact numbers, but it's upwards of like ninety five percent of 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 the uh, of the breweries. Wow. Um, yeah. Yeah. So, <laughs> so um, Anheuser-Busch. <laughs> that's right. That's right. And it was really born out of uh, frustration when, when I left uh, the brewing industry. So I see, I left brewing in 2007. Um, so I've been out of it for a while, but at the end, at the end of my run as a brewer there, it was, uh, I was managing multiple breweries and I was spending so much time just doing paperwork. And, you know, I was trying to manage everything with spreadsheets. And I was just like, why, why am I doing this? This is 2007. Like, there's got to be software for this. And, and there wasn't. <laughs> so, you know, fast forward a few years, I transitioned into software and, and uh, started looking at doing my own thing. And, and here I am. <laughs> it's a lot more to unpack. But, <laughs> but the funny thing is, it's the perfect story because the most successful startups are founded on somebody having a very specific problem that they want to solve. And then they realize that there's another audience of people who share this problem. You know, that ultimately is the, you know, and like you said, it's, there is a weird, unfortunate human capability to withstand a lot of pain and like live through it's weird <laughs> so when you come along with something that can take like first principles type of approaches and like like we can solve this a lot faster it's a real wow moment yeah that's it's funny you say that um i was on a uh, i was talking to someone last week about that very thing um you know your your tolerance to pain right and and the analogy i used was the old the old like frog uh in frog or lobster in, in a pot of water you know, if you put it in cold and slowly turn the heat up, uh, they don't notice. They just cook to death. Yeah. Or as you throw it in hot, like, ah, what is wrong? Right. So um, I do find that a lot in, in this industry where people have been doing things for so long. Um, 
in a specific way that it's really hard to, they don't know how much pain they're in. They don't know how much process can be automated for them and how much time they're wasting um, in their day-to-day operations and planning. Uh, and like, that's, that's a really hard bridge to gap. Yeah. If you think about, and it, as you look at, you know, this is why software development and you look at all the methodologies, right? We hear the, the use of phrases like user stories, you know, and, yeah. and why is it important? Cause that's ultimately what we're doing. And I actually love that more people are, are adopting agile as a methodology or just like scrum or whatever all the different methodologies are, but they start to use the same phrasing versus before it was like feature milestone. I mean, like <laughs> it doesn't really emote that this means something to the person that's using this product versus I can solve a problem that a user has, and this is how we're going to solve it through a feature build. <laughs> right, right. So that, that kind of classic user story uh, language or as a user, I want to do X, right? Right. Um, you know, so I found it, uh, when I was building the software, I wasn't very, uh, keen on the agile processes. I was a very, still a very new developer in the software world. I really knew nothing about it, but that was looking back, that was my mindset, you know, because I had worked in the brewery, in a brewery for, for a decade. And so, you know, I was coming at it from that perspective, like as a brewer, I want to be able to schedule my beers and change my mind without having to erase an entire whiteboard. (laughs) 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 So I I was doing that without even knowing it. (laughs) And I think that's probably the best way to be agile. And I've, I've worked with a lot of developers and this idea of like, you know, value is not in, is in the output, not in the framework, like sticking to the framework becomes the thing you do more than caring about the quality of the user story coming into it. And we often get wrapped in this problem of like, are you agile? And I used to joke said like, you talk to developers and they've got different ways they do things. And it becomes an argument of, are you agile enough? Like, oh, our team's more agile than you are because we do dailies and like, yeah. I, this is not how we should measure the success of a development team. <laughs> it should be who uses the bloody product at the end. <laughs> yeah, yeah, I know. It's it's funny um, when you see people getting so caught up, like you said, in the framework and not on outcomes, right? <laughs> yeah. Right? Um, and I think, uh, are you familiar with, uh, what's the OKR book? Um, oh, yeah, the Google one. Uh, yeah. No, Inspired. Uh, Marty, oh, Kagan, okay. Marty Kagan's book. Yeah, yeah. Um, yeah, that's a that's a great read for anyone out there who hasn't read it. Um, but you know, it it it, it kind of teaches you to focus more on outcomes rather than what you were talking about framework, yeah. right? And we don't really care how we get there, right? We just know that we're we're trying to get this outcome, and you can empower your team or yourself to to get there in whatever works best for you, whether that's agile whether that's the, the base camp style of shaping up uh, projects uh, yeah, or, or waterfall. I mean, if waterfall works for you, do it, use it. I mean, <laughs> worked for Niagara falls for a long time. And waterfall is <laughs> not a terrible thing. Yeah. yeah. No, no. Wait, and it's it. I like that you uh, will get into some of your development history. Cause I'm going to nerd out on the, on, on your, your choice of a framework. Speaking of, of frameworks, 
I'm a I'm a hack coder myself, mostly hack, definitely not code, because uh, I came from an ops background, and then I worked sure. in an organization, and we and I supported a development team. And the first thing I always think is, how do I be a better purveyor of things if I don't know my customer? My customer is the development team sitting beside me, and all of a sudden I had this new developer that came onto the team. And uh, and he was using this nifty little thing that I'd never heard of called Ruby on Rails, <laughs> and so you know we were a Java shop, and it, and and that's that's how you describe it. Like we're a Java shop, so thus everything <clears throat> must be written in Java, gets converted right. from whatever to Java, and, and all of a sudden this Ruby on Rails stuff shows up, and we had he's got a Mac, everybody else has got a Windows machine. It was like, oh, how did this happen? You know, we let a fox into the into the developer hen house. <laughs> yeah, where'd this guy come from? But what was neat <laughs> was in order to support that team, what I did was I started to learn how to build and learn how to design. And 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 he showed me and and then the the they hired a couple more developers and and I started really learning. And I took all of my systems that I used for my internal ops functions. And I wrote them in Ruby on Rails so that I could, you know, build inventory management systems and patch management systems for our servers and stuff like that, because it let me, you know, live the experience that they were living and then going through my own processes with it, which was neat. And then I started going into, I'm like, why isn't more, aren't more people using this stuff? It's fantastic <laughs> because right? it was a really great, <laughs> great platform. And then I started you know, following Jason Freed, of course, and David Hanemeyer Hampson, and yep. yeah, really, really wild stuff. But I liked their, I'll, I'll say, sort of the the aggressive anti patterns that they adopted that <laughs> ultimately become patterns. So there's a weird irony in in the, if you try to be so yeah. anti pattern, you have to create a pattern that's anti pattern. <laughs> right, right. I think their their deal is uh, kind of you, you can you can sum up the Ruby on Rails framework as um, you know when, when you start building a piece of software, there's so many decisions you have to make. Right, like you have to decide you know what kind of database you're going to use. What you know how do you how do you architect how do you talk to the database? You know, are you going to use this ORM or that ORM or a different one? Like all these different things, and Rails is just opinionated, and they're like, look. This is how you do it, <laughs> yeah. And you don't have to make those decisions, right? You can just start producing value um, immediately within about five minutes, really. You know, as long as it takes to bundle install, you can you can be creating something worth worth value to someone. So what, what I've always enjoyed too, when you get you know when we look at different frameworks, and it becomes almost a bit of a religious discussion as to which one people choose, and and I, I laugh because the argument I would get when I would, I mean, I still develop with Ruby on Rails. I just did a Rails new on a new project yesterday, in fact. And uh, people always say, well, I hear it doesn't sort of perform at scale. And I tell them like, you know, where, where do you store your code? And they're like, on GitHub. I'm like, I think it operates okay at scale. Guess what yeah. it's written on? <laughs> it's Rails. <laughs> it's Rails. And, and you know, with the advent of technologies like Kubernetes, you know, you can you can scale horizontally, just fire up as many containers as you want with a push of a button. And then, then your problem, scale problems becomes, can your database handle all these connections, right? right. Yeah. Uh, but, but if you get there, like that's a really good problem to have. <laughs> you know, you're, yeah. you're doing something right if you reach that point. So, so your, your development 
and brewing. Uh, tell me about the timeline. You know, uh, where where did one happen? And and obviously, there's a passion for both, and they probably both preceded your your jobs doing either of those those particular things. Yeah, that, that's that's true. So, um, I'll date myself a little bit here. Um, the first computer I got was an IBM PS2 back nice. in God, I don't know, eighty. Let's see, I was 12 years old, so I had to be like 87, 88-ish. Um, and I, you know, the, you know, it had one disk drive, and and if I wanted to run a program, you know, I had to load up DOS on one disk. I had my DOS disk, and then That's I had right. to like put a different disk in to load that up. <laughs> swapping three and a half inch floppies, floppies. Yes, uh, right. <laughs> and uh, so I started. I, I fell in love with programming basically as soon as I discovered BASIC on on that little IBM PS2. Uh, and then, you know, fast forward to high school, um, I learned Pascal. I took a Pascal on AP Pascal class as a freshman and a sophomore. Um, and then I was done at high school. Like there's no more computer science for me at high school. Because uh, it was still, it was still, this was in the early 90s. So there was, there was almost nothing available. That in that's my, always that's what's funny to think of. Like I I, I look I, I don't want to be the like get off my lawn technology guy <laughs> to the young kids these days, but people are like don't realize sometimes that like I when I went I took typing class in high school. Mm -hmm. I was the only boy in the typing class, and we were on IBM Selectric typewriters. Like we didn't even have computers. We had icons. Was the like school computer, which yeah, it was like but. Yeah, there. So there was no programming track. It wasn't even a matter of like, oh darn, you've got to learn. You know, you're not learning Objective C. Instead, you're learning old school. You know, programming styles. You're like, no, no. There's like, there's nothing. There is no programming at all. Yeah, yeah. So you know, that's kind of where it ended for me as far as learning goes. And it, and you know, the internet was at that point in its infancy. You know, I think I think I had to pay America Online by the minute to be on the internet. That's right. <laughs> and, and, you know, you, you can't just hop on to Udemy and take a coding class back then, right? So, um, so I kind of drifted away from technology at that point um, and graduated high school, lost interest in college completely. Uh, like, this is not for me. I've had enough of school. Uh, and I just started working. And, uh, and ended up working in a restaurant, you know, like, like a college dropout does. Right. <laughs> <laughs> and, and, uh, and found myself on disability, broke my arm playing basketball, uh, found myself on disability and, uh, with nothing to do, just sitting around the house, nothing to do. Um, and you know, I had been working at, uh, at the only local brew pub in town. I mean, there was just, there's just one. I was, I was working there and, um, so I had kind of, my interest in beer had been peaked at that point. Uh, you know, I had tried some Sierra Nevada, I had tried some of their beer. Um, and so I was, I was interested in this whole craft brew thing, which this was like 96, 1996. It was still. It was a very unique thing, right? It was, it was, it was super out on its own at that time. Yeah, I mean, out here in California, it was Sierra Nevada, Anchor Steam, 
and and Samuel Smiths, right? The important Samuel Smiths. So those are like the three things you could find reliably. Yeah. Um, so not a lot of variety. Yeah, so I was interested in it. And so while I had this time off, well, there's a home brew shop down the street that I could walk to. Serendipity, I guess. Um, and so as a 19-year-old, I went in there and I bought, bought homebrewing ingredients with my disability checks. And, and uh, you know, apparently that's legal because it's, it's not actually alcohol. It's just That's the true. Yeah, you're, it's only <laughs> ingredients. That's interesting. I forgot about that. Yeah. So, you know, I started brewing beer and immediately fell in love with it. Just the whole, the process, the science, um, the chemistry, you know, everything about it. And I like beer, it turns out, you know. <laughs> <laughs> it's a beautiful pairing. <laughs> yeah. So, you know, I did that and, and I found a way to do it with one broken arm with a cast up to my, up to my shoulder. Uh, uh, so right there, that tells me like I'm passionate, right? And, and so that kind of, catalyzed my uh uh my re-entry into software a little bit as i hadn't really done anything in in many years um but i had a lap uh no i didn't have a laptop i had a desktop back then i think laptops were really a thing yet yeah still <laughs> still newish at the time yeah yeah so i had a desktop and i had microsoft visual basic and you know when you're brewing beer you have to record a lot of data there's a lot of you know temperatures that you have to hit just right uh, in order for things to go right and, and timing's important uh, things like pH and it's just a lot of data to record and I was writing it down on paper and that was the very first time that I thought there's got to be software for this yeah. uh, there, really, way. <laughs> there really wasn't so I I started and never finished writing kind of homebrew management software uh, in Visual Basic which I think I was doing it more just to play with Visual Basic than to actually complete the project. <laughs> uh, I realize in hindsight, but um, so yeah, uh, did that and went back to work. And when I went back to work, I was able to get on as the prep cook, meaning I work the same hours as the brewer does. And you know, I, I had in my mind like I'm going to get a job working in the brewery, like working the same hours as the brewer. Uh, it was convenient, the walk-in. I had to walk through the brewery to get to the walk-in. And so I was going back and forth, calling lettuce and everything else back and forth. And and so I, I essentially just bothered him for about 18 months, <laughs> bringing him my beers, trying to talk to him about beer. I, I think I just annoyed him to death until he finally just gave me a job. <laughs> <laughs> and so I started brewing professionally, right? not too long after I turned 21. Nope. Uh, now that was the interesting thing too, because at mm -hmm. the time, like you said, there's a lot of, there's a lot of, obviously there's a huge amount of science to it and it's a combination of, of science and, and then, you know, human behavior and like what will be good at the time and, you know, what will people enjoy, uh, you know, which is, you know, we see it often with the sort of the trends that will roll through the brewing and the wine industry you know, my, my dad was a, uh, he worked as a tour guide at Jackson Triggs winery in Niagara Falls. And he said, you could tell 
but sideways was becoming a thing because everybody was coming in asking if we had a Pinot Noir. And he's like, you know, that's basically like the PBR of wine, right? Like this is not, this is not a good type of wine, but because it became a, it got a mass market appeal, you know? So it was neat that he would get those things and sort of the trends and the way that people would use it. But then at the same time, digging into the science of, of why one flavor is better or different than the other. And, and, so at the same time, you don't really have internet. You don't have a lot of things. What kind of resources do you get to figure out how the hell you make a great beer? It's hard. Uh, it, was, it was very hard back then. I mean, you had to rely on published books, right? Um, you know, Charlie Papazian, uh, who's a legend in home brewing, um, has a great book that still stood the test of time. It's still one of the most popular books. Um, I'm having a hard time remember the other ones, but there were several very well-known books. Um, and then, uh, you know, there were also homebrew, homebrew clubs were a great resource, right? Ah, uh, nice. uh, I know in the city I grew up in, in Fresno, California, uh, there was a great homebrew club. Um, and yeah, I think it was pretty common um, because, because of that lack of, of access. Like, what do you do? Like, you know, well, you have a brew pub and, and you have a bunch of guys sitting around t talking about beer, like, hey, we should get together and homebrew and That's share right. recipes and share knowledge. Uh, and that really, and I, I think that's still, a, even with the advent of technology and how easily information is, is, is accessible, I think that's still um, a really popular thing for homebrewers. It, it's, it's funny if you think about like all of the, if you take the industry out of it, if you take the name off the industry and you take what you just described, technology and brewing are pretty darn aligned, right? Like we have user communities, we have, you know, resources, we've got sort of the, the, the Bibles of the, of the things we've got, which would be like the pragmatic programmer and stuff like this. Like uh -huh. it is amazing that you, regardless of the industry, we do map to these same sort of behaviors and, and methods. It's, it's funny when you hear it described like the homebrew wasn't in fact, I think like the, that was like the homebrew computing club. Wasn't that like the, the Steve jobs, Wozniak one yeah. where they actually, <laughs> yeah. yeah, that's exactly right. <laughs> yeah, no, there, there, there is, a, there's a lot of commonalities there for sure. And I, I would go so far even as to say like, uh, I, I have seen in both communities, like you, you can see kind of these different sects where, you know, in, in the technology world, there's, there's some communities that are very open and caring and, and kind, and there's some toxic ones, right? Yeah. There's just mean people out there and they, and, and you can kind of get yourself caught up with them accidentally sometimes. Um, and I see the same thing in the brewing world. Uh, so, but I guess that's, just kind of human nature, right? You just kind of see yeah. that everywhere, everywhere you go. <laughs> but I do like that this is the natural formation of, of humans in that we want to achieve something. We realize other people also want to achieve this thing. Let's share stories. It's, it's a very yeah. sort of tribal behavior. And, and, and I love that it happens because it means that you can basically democratize access to stuff. Like yeah. you don't need to have a university education in brewing science or whatever the, you know, whatever the, the background you would need as a, a true formal education for it. There's a lot of stuff that you can get that is, you know, passed down through the ages and, and through your peer group. 
Yeah, that's absolutely true. Um, and I, you know, when you were talking about that, it, it kind of made me draw a line between open source software and the brewing industry uh, and how how widely people share things. Um, you know, uh, a, a good example, uh, an easy example that I think everyone can probably relate to um, was uh, during all the California wildfires a couple years ago, Sierra Nevada brewed a beer uh, and then they took that recipe and they just sent it, they, they open sourced it basically and said, you know, if you want to brew this beer and and, and donate some of the proceeds to, you know, oh, to wow. communities that have been uh, hit hard by California wildfires, uh, please do it. And it was very interesting. Really uh, cool. I was able to get my hands on several different iterations of it and do, do kind of a vertical tasting. And even though it's the same recipe, they were all different beers. They were yeah. similar. <laughs> They were similar, but they were all had their own uniqueness to it. And and because of that, like the brewing community is typically very open. Like, yeah, here, yeah, here's my recipe. Like, yeah. What are you what are you gonna do with it? Like, you're not gonna go monopolize like Anheuser Busch with this, you know. <laughs> You'd be lucky to win a medal at the Great American Beer Festival with it. That's a <laughs> that's yeah, a crapshoot. <laughs> Yeah, if you took a Budweiser and poured it into a fancy glass and then called it a uh, you know this new new age homebrew, it, it wouldn't wouldn't necessarily like it's, and it's funny. I, I shouldn't, I yeah, you know, I, I picked the name and I shouldn't pick on it. You know, I'll, I'll pick on a Canadian one. Call it you know Labatt Fifty. So I was a kid and I grew up, and uh, my my dad drank Labatt Fifty, which is I think it's a it's not a Pilsner. I I don't even know exactly what it is. Uh, most people would describe it as horse piss. Uh, it's a pretty <laughs> horrifying beer, but I drank it as a kid, like as a young drinker, mainly because you would go to a party and you would get a bunch of Levat 50. And if you, everybody would, you get back to the party after you left for a while and they'd be like, oh, we're all out of beer. And I'd reach into the cooler and like, oh, darn it. Let me get my empties out. And I would see like five left of my beer going like, what do you mean we're out of beer? There's a bunch of Levat 50 left here. And they're like, I said we were out of beer, not out of 50. <laughs> so my dad actually drank it because he he drank it in Montreal. Uh, and it was easy to say 50. Uh, it's the easiest, easiest French word you could learn. So uh, that's, that's oh, where. So oh, that's interesting. Uh, well, I, you know, I mean, we, we have talked bad about Anheuser Busch and, and a lot of people do, but um, I, in all fairness, uh, that is an incredibly hard beer to produce. Yeah. well and consistently because there's it's so refined and so and at um, scale right it's, it's one thing even scale. to pull it off as one batch would be one thing but you'd be lucky more than you'd be right on how you got it yeah well uh, they blend yeah uh, that's a very interesting process like the people that do this have probably the best palates in the world but um yeah it's really hard to pull that off you know you you can brew you can brew a repeatable IPA very easily because there's so many hops, lots of malt to to cover up any kind of defects that might happen. In the <laughs> you brewing can kind process. of hide it a bit. <laughs> yeah, no, yeah, but with with Budweiser and and all these light beers, like there's nothing there. There's nothing there to hide it. Like it has to be clean. It has to be very well done, and it's hard to do. So you know, you have to give them their their due. <laughs> what they do is difficult. I'm going to ask you a beer question because I'm curious. Yeah, let's do it. I, I don't, I hate IPAs. Like I don't, I, I, for whatever reason, just it's a, it's a flavor or a style that just does not really sit well with my palate. Uh, and 
you know, but I'm not a heavy, I don't drink a lot and, and I haven't for quite a long time, but even for whatever reason, I just find it's just the flavor and there's a heaviness or there's something to it that doesn't really map to my palate. And it became a huge thing. Obviously IPAs were everywhere and they still are, uh, mm -hmm. you know, in the same way that my dad would complain about the Pinot Noir, <laughs> you know, somewhere along the line, you know, and I think it was what Sam Adams was probably one of the ones that was kind of a, a real strong IPA. There was literally a brand in Canada. I don't know if there was down here called IPA. It was like, oh, wow. that was literally the name of the, of the beer, just an IPA on the front. And it, it, it was, but there's a reason why IPAs as a recipe exist. And then there's yes. a, then there's a, there's the mass adoption is a different thing. So why the hell does one need an IPA? I'm curious what the breakdown is of the ingredients. Okay. So the, the name is literal, quite literal, right? Mm -hmm. Uh, it's, it's an Indian pale ale, right? Why, why is it called India pale ale? Uh, so, you know, back, probably 14, 1500s, 1600s, maybe. Uh, I don't have the exact dates in my head, but uh, before refrigeration, let's just say that. <laughs> uh, yeah, when, 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 yeah, so when, um, when Britain was still heavily colonized in India, uh, you know, they would, they would send their ships down there and they would send beer, right? And they found that standard beers spoiled by the time they got there. Because uh, no refrigeration, right? And so what they found was if you add more hops, hops act as a preservative. So they would just load these things up with hops, just just, uh, just, <laughs> just to let stomp. it survive the trip, right? And not right, kill anybody and, and, was drinking it. Right, and so the the other thing with hops um, is that bitterness that that most people find offensive um, fades over time. Right. Uh, so a really fresh, fresh beer is going to be much more bitter than than a beer that's ah, sat okay. on that's been sitting on the shelf for for six months, right? And so you'll you'll often see on on IPA bottles or cans like you know like don't age this beer. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> <laughs> it's not for aging. Um, you, you know, because along with the bitterness, you lose a lot of the aromas because it's just, it's basically essential oils that come out of the the hop cone. Um, that give it these really nice aromatics, um, and those they're volatile, right? They're yeah. they dissipate, and their chemical structure is is very delicate, and so it just falls apart, um, and it just becomes kind of a stale, boring beer after even a month. Like they're they're pretty oh, wow, it's pretty a volatile. Rapid yeah. turn, yeah. Okay, it is. Yeah, yeah. So IPAs you should consume fresh, but but that's kind of the story behind how it got there. They got their name. Um, uh, like everything we do in America, we've kind of turned it on its head and, and <laughs> yeah, we, now we've just made, <laughs> made it popular with hipsters and then it took off. <laughs> <laughs> You're not using it for its originally intended purpose. Right? <laughs> That's right. Now this is what, and so again, I use the, I use the words, but I don't even know really exactly what they are other than that. It would say, you know, the other one was Labatt Blue, which was like the most popular beer in Canada. And this mm -hmm. is what's always funny to us that again. I totally take on the fact that I, I, I strung up Anheuser-Busch a couple of times in the chat so far, <laughs> but we used to joke about Labatt Blue, same thing. It was like, oh yeah, you know, I would, I would go as a kid because you know, drinking age is 19 and, you know, let's just say for all intents and purposes, 
statute of limitation wore off. I can actually say it. Uh, I used to go to the beer store before I was 19 and you would go and if you ordered, you know, a Budweiser or Molson Canadian, which was a very popular beer, mm-hmm. you'd get asked for ID. But if you asked, if you asked for a case of Labatt Blue, they would never ask for your ID because there's no way this is for you, kid. This got to be for your dad. <laughs> so they would they wouldn't think that it was for you. Uh, and it was a pilsner, but okay. it was the most popular beer in Canada. Even huh. though we made fun of it, and you know, it said, "Oh, it's my dad drinks it." Molson Canadian, one would think, because all the kids drink it, would be the best selling. And in fact, it wasn't the case. Yeah, I mean, a, a lot of that um, comes with uh, perception. Yeah, you know, I mean, and Anheuser Busch is the number one. Budweiser is the number one selling beer uh, here in the United States, and you know that I, I could draw a lot of parallels to exactly what you just said. You know, um, people people look at it, and go, oh, it's Budweiser. You know, um, you know, there's all these craft beers over here. We're gonna go buy those, and <laughs> yeah. you know, in, in your bubble, you don't see a lot of people buying <laughs> Budweiser, but yeah, but it's so easy to drink. Like it's it's just extremely popular. Well, and the irony is that what. I mean, everything started as a craft brewery. You know, it's just the difference is like sort of the definition of the size of it. And in fact, this was what, um, goodness gracious, what's the fellow from Sam Adams there? I can't remember his name. Jim Jim Cook. Yes. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, And he, it got to the point where he had to really kind of like lobby to try and still be considered a microbrewer for taxation and business purposes because he was about to cross the chasm to a very expensive operating land because they were now brewing so many bottles. And I forget what the numbers, like millions of bottles. In millions of barrels. Yeah, yeah. yeah. They make a lot of beer. Um, but, and that, that that's actually been, they're, they're still kind of fighting that fight uh, yeah. with the Brewers Association. Um, Brewers Association, which is by, by no means like, the law of the land, but they are kind of the de facto. They're like the know, teamsters like, of uh... like the de facto IRS, you know, yeah, the yeah. brewing community. Uh, and and they have defined like what a craft brewery is. And they've said, sorry, you're Sam Adams. You're no longer a craft brewery. You're, you brew too much beer. Yeah. Um, and so just that label means a lot, right? Um, setting the money thing aside, which is definitely... <laughs> definitely an issue when you start getting that big. Um, just having, being able to put that on a label and having it mean something uh, goes a long way. Yeah. When, and like, there's a regulatory thing that must be much different at that layer. And and like you said, like that's when they go to that next level, it's no longer, now they're a mass market, you know, like, and it's, yep. it probably takes it out of people's menu. You know, if they say, ah, yeah. you know, this is, just another now, uh, brew. It's a macro brew. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Well, and then the funny thing is that just like software and technology and any other business, right? There's been a huge consolidation over the last decade and, and even further back, I think, as a lot of those microbreweries, <clears throat> you know, got picked up and they're ultimately under yep. you know InBev and and and, and A B and or well. They're, they themselves got collapsed down to yeah. each other. Yep. Um, what's the, like Molson Coors, I forget who they are. They're probably all owned by InBev at this point as well. It's uh, 
Yeah, I can't remember. But I remember going like Blue Moon. That was a big thing is people were like, oh, I like this Blue Moon because it's a, you know, a small, you know, craft style, you know, Belgian, you know, wheat beer. And they're like, well, take a look at the back of the, the can now. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I think they're owned by a, a, a rival a large Belgian company. I can't remember yeah. what they're what they're called. But um, but yeah, I mean lots of uh, similarities there too like they're they're just buying back their market share right yeah they're like oh we lost we lost two percent of the market to craft brews how many of them can we buy up and just put <laughs> under in our portfolio you know um and oftentimes they don't change anything about the way the company is run right but when people when people hear that they're like oh you sold out i'm not gonna buy your beer anymore <laughs> oh, no, that's what's terrible too like even i'm a so i'm a coffee drinker as i'm like people seen on camera I'm, I'm guzzling back a coffee in the afternoon which is probably a fundamentally terrible idea but <laughs> like i i'm a big fan of blue bottle coffee i used to love going in when i go to san mm -hmm. francisco and you go to blue bottle and then they open one up in new york so i would go to my office in new york i'm like oh this is amazing go to blue bottle and then they got bought by nestle and everybody's just like, looks like I'm never going to Blue Bottle again. I'm like, it's the same coffee. <laughs> like they're just giving them access to distribution. They're keeping the company the same, but no one believes it. Like they just think automatically, oh, they're they're gonna get rolled in and change the flavor and change everything now, right? Yeah, it's an interesting line to walk, right? Um, you know, I, Nestle has some Nestle and lots of other big companies have have some uh, controversial business. Uh, business tactics and decisions they've made. Um, and it really just, it becomes a personal decision at that point, you know, because you're still, you're still putting money into Nestle's pocket, right? Right. Yeah. Uh, yeah. Um, so it's, it, it just becomes very personal at that point. And I try not to get too, too involved in those kinds of conversations. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> and again, like I said, it, it maps so beautifully to, you know, the, inside software and you're you're so you you decided to go the route you look i gotta solve this problem i can solve this problem i've gotten a lot further than visual basic you've you've built it so you know you you put together fermentable and it again i i applaud the approach because one of the best things you can do is choose a specific niche that you know you have expertise in and you know mm -hmm. the audience you know the customer you know the pain so when you go to tell them you're not selling a better widget. You're literally like, no, I used to do this for a living and I know this helped me and this is what it means it can do for you. Uh, like that's, it's cool to see that you can do that. Who knows one day you may get bought by Oracle. Hey, it's, and then you'll, you'll be having that Nestle conversation. But, <laughs> but in the meantime, I love I love microbreweries. I love startups. I love the fact that people can grassroots just solve a problem and then take it to the market and test it. Mm -hmm. So what did it feel like? You know, what was what was your decision where you said, I've, I think I've got a thing here? Man, it was scary. Even, even though I was really not, I wasn't putting any money on the line, <laughs> really. You know, you, you can go, you can go get a, a, a T, T1 micro instance from AWS for, Oh, 10 bucks a month or something, right? SaaS <laughs> and IaaS are a wonderful thing, aren't they? <laughs> yeah. Yeah. So, uh, you know, it was, uh, you know, it was maybe, I was maybe gambling a couple hundred dollars a year. You know? Yeah. But it was more uh, putting myself out there, right? I was, you know, when I broke ground and started writing code for Fermentable, I think I'd been writing code professionally for like eight months 
You know, wow. I still I still really didn't know what I was doing. <laughs> and sometimes when I look back in the code base, it's it's very obvious. <laughs> you know, what was I thinking? God. <laughs> um, but yeah, for me, that was the biggest thing is just putting myself out there, right? Like uh, I didn't know how, really, barely knew how to write code and how to write an, an application that could that wasn't going to fall over all the time. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> uh, uh, and I had no idea how to be an entrepreneur and how to start a business. Like I, I had no idea what I was doing. And so just like, it, it was very overwhelming. Like all of, like, like, you know, you don't, you can't, you couldn't back then just go log into Stripe and click a few buttons and have Stripe set your company up for you. Right. Right. <laughs> like you couldn't do that. So I had to figure out like, luckily I did have the internet by then. You know, how do I form an LLC? How do I, <laughs> how do I pay taxes? You know? yeah. um, how do I charge people? What do I charge people? Like, what is this product even worth? Like that was probably one of the hardest things um, that I faced and still have trouble with is, is how much, how much are people willing to pay for this? <laughs> that's a very difficult question to answer. Um, yeah. that I think that's, and it's funny this the the real reason why startups struggle quite often is understanding how do you price the thing you do in relative value to what people will pay for and find the top of that curve and and yep. that's really what it is you're either you're either priced high and and priced out and you run out of money or you you know so you don't find product market fit or you run out of money you know there's right. like two kind of major in fact, I think that's the only real technically two reasons why a company fails is they either run out of money or they don't find product market fit, which is really actually running out of money. <laughs> yes, it really is. <laughs> it really is. Um, and lucky, luckily for me, like a, again, like I started this thing on shoestrings with, with nothing and really never, never purchased anything until the company had money in the bank account to buy it. Yeah. Um, so I've never taken on any debt. Um, actually, uh, up until this last year, I never took any money from it at all. <laughs> oh wow! Okay, so you you the the true bootstrap story was uh, yes. was there. Incredible. Uh, yeah, I mean, I, I will say, uh, and challenging. It's brave, right? It's uh, it it's, is, but but I could do it on my own terms and on my own time. Right. So I don't have any external forces um, pushing me to be growing at any kind of pace. Right. So yeah. it's it's much calmer <laughs> than, than having that kind of environment. Right. Um, but I but I will say, uh, you know, the first job that I got in tech. Um, that uh, it, it was a bootstrap company um, and. So I kind of everything I knew about running, being involved in a tech company uh, was was from that lens, right? Yeah. Um, do you know who? Uh, have you heard of Rob Walling? Uh, Microconf. Uh, the name sounds familiar. I'm 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 blurry because my children don't sleep. Uh, but yeah. <laughs> <laughs> well, <I> mean, <laughs> uh, but yeah. Sorry. Keep yeah, going. <laughs> well, yeah. Look, look him up when you have some time. Um, he's uh, was a fantastic mentor to me and continues to be to this day. Um, but he he runs. Uh, he bootstrapped all of his companies. Um, oh, okay. 
the the company that he hired me on to uh, my first my first job was uh, in tech was uh, it's called Drip. It's an email marketing platform, um, and you know he he sold that to Lead Pages for. I don't know how much, but it was a lot of money. <laughs> and he, he could essentially be retired, but now he's doing angel investing and and continuing to run his his uh, bootstrap SaaS conference kind of platform. Really? Um, but yeah, so I kind of, you know, just to circle back on that, like I always saw starting a software company through that lens, right? So... So to me, it was never attractive to try to go out and raise money. And, and, and to be honest, it's it's scary and it stresses me out just thinking about it. <laughs> uh, having I, having the, those outside pressures pushing on you to to get that return um, as fast as possible. I think one of the things I really enjoyed was listening to Jason Fried did a few podcasts and uh, he was on uh, on a bunch of them. And he, he's like the same age range as you and I, and, mm -hmm. and his stories of, you know, of, as a youth. And it's funny that we, you know, we all kind of came to it. We arrived at a place where no one should have allowed us to get here. You know, like we, <laughs> we got to an industry that almost didn't exist, which was the way that we bypassed the university path because, mm -hmm. It had just started. And then there was a period where you needed a CS degree to get any, even to get a desktop support job. And, and I managed to like sneak past it or, you know, people went the founders route or, or different things. But it's same thing. He talks about the not wanting the responsibility to the investors because I'd rather disappoint an investor than a customer. And that clearly is not a good way to face your investors right <laughs> so they you know he and, and and dhh you know when they did base camp 37 signals back in that day mm -hmm. they said you know look we know what you're what you need to get you're going to invest you need an outsized return on this investment you require growth targets you require scaling we're comfortable at the rate we're scaling and you know uh dhh yeah. tries a nice car uh i imagine jason does as well and they've earned it they really you know and it's <clears> neat <throat> to see that they took on it was both a responsibility to bootstrap, but also a comfort in that you have more control over the the path of and the trajectory of your company. Yeah, absolutely. I I am very big fans of theirs. If you couldn't tell already, <laughs> um, you know their their book uh, uh, rework. Their books rework. Um, fantastic. Yeah. What was the first one? So rework I did, and then there was the do they do remote? Remote. Yeah. Yeah, they did remote. I haven't read that one. Um, and they they have another one that's more recent uh, called Shape Up. Yep. That uh, I absolutely love. Like, if there's one way I could pick to work in the software industry, it's like everything in that book resonated with me uh, on such a deep level. Um, it really just it, it kind of throws a middle finger up at, at, at agile. Yeah. <laughs> the hardest part I found with it was I, I love, uh, I love when they published shape up as like a PDF and mm -hmm. they started the blogs and they started talking about it. I was like, this is cool. And I was all in on it. The hardest thing I bump into, and we sort of talked about the start was that the idea that the anti pattern becomes a pattern. And so it, the, when you go to explain to me, how is it, different than agile 
the first thing you have to do is create comparatives of like, well, a user story is this, you know, and they've got a bet versus an epic. And when you start doing that, you're like, oh, now I'm I'm turning it into a framework that's going to be, you know, a thing I got to latch on to. But meanwhile, it is meant to be almost like the Agile, man the Agile Manifesto. If you take all the crappy words around the, the framework away, the Manifesto is what I love about Agile. The way sure. people apply it and put a machine around it is like taking ISO and certifying the Agile Manifesto, which is what I, I'm disappointed in. Right, right. Yeah, I I agree with that. I I have to say, like, I, I don't know if I'm making this up or or if this was like one of the first parts of the Shape Up book was, was uh, I, I feel like they told you to just kind of forget everything you know about Agile and don't try to apply it to this. Yeah. Uh, and just just read this with a blank mind and no assumptions um, because you'll be fighting, kind of like you said, like trying to trying to compare bets versus <laughs> yeah always trying to map it against a familiar it's and that's an unfortunate human behavior thing is that what when why so here's the thing what my favorite developers that i've ever worked with and some of the most profound people in both creating neat code and great products more than code mm -hmm. they don't come from a traditional cs background quite often they come from liberal arts behavioral psychology different areas or they're self-taught so the only reason they coded was to get something done versus yep. learning the beauty and the science of code, which I'm, I'm a, I love people. We need those scientists of code out there. But when you want product builders, you need somebody who can just shake off all the methodologies and say, I gotta, I think I, we can do this. Let's just figure out how to get it done. Uh, that's so true. That's so true. Um, I mean, I, I don't have a computer science degree. Um, I got about a half of a mechanical engineering degree <laughs> uh, because I love math, but um, it, it's that, that's so accurate. And you know, I I will say throughout my eight year career um, in software now, I think there have been maybe three times that I wished I had some kind of computer science background. Right, um, where I had to like dig through articles and and read really dense things to kind of you know figure out some very complicated database issue, you know. Yeah. <laughs> uh, but the majority of the time, it's absolutely unnecessary, and and really like this this world moves so fast. Um, universities cannot. There's no way they can keep up. Um, no, and the curriculum needs to be tested. So even if they're right, they're right for a test period, and which means it's five years old at a minimum, right? Yeah, yeah. And five years, five years ago, God, React was brand new five years ago. Yeah. You know? <laughs> like, if you're teaching React now, as it was five years ago, like, you're teaching the wrong curriculum. You know? <laughs> yeah. So, when it, and, it used to be, then that was like the, I find now, I think it's getting better in that, we're seeing more injection from the tech organizations are feeding into the university system to create opportunity to like get funding into it. And I mean, this is also one where I'm always torn because I believe it's true, right? I'm a, I'm a free market kid at heart. And I know, unfortunately, part of the free market is that the people with the money are going to influence a bit 
you know, the behaviors of the lower, the next generation. Mm -hmm. So some people really push back and say, well, no, you know, I don't want, you know, a Microsoft or an Oracle or, uh, you know, uh, a VMware or whoever, AWS influencing, you know, their products into the educational system. And I more think of it as you want the 2000 kids to come out of here with a workable skill that they can immediately get a job for, or do you want them to learn touring and then right. <laughs> have to figure out how to real pro how to program in full stack, you know, when they get out the other side. Yeah. Well, that, that's a real problem, right? Um, you know, I think a, a lot of people are recognizing that, that automation is a real problem. Yeah. <laughs> it's, it's not here yet, but give it another 20, 30 years, you know, we have to have a scalable way to train people um, to use these technologies because so many jobs are going to go away. Others will be created, you know, but right. But we have to have a system that can tr train people to work in these in in these new new industries and new jobs. And and the university system as it stands, um, in my opinion, is is doesn't work for this for this model. Um, so yeah, like who's gonna who's gonna dump all that money in? It's it's gonna have to be these big companies. Um, What's funny too about when you come at it from a non-backgrounded, you know, approach. Yeah, I don't have a university degree. I don't have, you know, whatever would lead me to the start point. The fact that you don't have any presumptions or or assumptions about anything helps you to really have a true first principles approach. You're like I don't have anything that's influenced me to get to here. So I'm, how can I possibly be incrementally improving? Mm -hmm. As far as I'm concerned, this life is an etch a sketch. And I'm just going to say, like, I have no idea how to do this. When I wrote code as a, in high school for like my high school, you know, comp sci class, my, the professor, he looked at it and he goes, this works. And I, I have no idea why you did it this way, but it works. <laughs> so I'm going to give you the, the mark, but you probably don't want to do this as a job. And I, you know, it turns out I'm dyslexic and have dyscalculia and I've got all sorts of exciting, you know, weirdness in my own brain that, that keeps me from being good at programming. But I'm also like a bloody raccoon trying to chase a shiny object inside a hole of a tree and I will die <laughs> with my arm stuck to it. So I'm, I'm willing to kind of keep grinding at it, which is why keep I still pushing. code. And I, I do new like, cause if I keep testing and I keep, it gets better. It does get better as you practice it and 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 put those in and find the use case and build for the use case. Not just like it's like I'm a guitarist and I can play all sorts of stuff on guitar. Can't read music. Can't sight read. Me either. And if I went back, <laughs> I actually went back to try and learn how to sight read, and it's horrifying because I was like, I just wanted to get to playing, and so. Yeah. And I see, so there it is, right? Like you, you have the same thing where, you, and you find other folks when I talk to other founders, I talk to other folks and you see these patterns. We all have sort of commonalities, like formal school system doesn't generally map, right? You know, that's why the Teal Foundation pulls them out at high school and says, don't even start college kid. I'm just going to pay you to build a company. <laughs> yeah. I, I, you, you, you use a word there that, 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 um, really, uh, uh, resonated with me, um, and that was uh, iteration, right? Uh, so, 
you know, what you described about that code you wrote in high school, um, you know, yeah, you're probably not giving yourself enough credit. Uh, I feel that way about every piece of code I write. <laughs> um, the, the, the initial implementation of anything shouldn't be guided by uh, frameworks like that or these or these think, even things that you've done before. And how can I build this feature and get it in the hands of customers and create value as soon as possible? Um, you know, we, if if the code works, fantastic, great. Yeah. And Job if that one. MVP, yeah, and if that MVP that took you four hours to write because you just like hacked it out in a super ugly way that your later self is going to look at and and wonder, you know, what you were on that day. Um, uh, if that works and no one ever asks for any improvements on the feature, it's a win, right? Like, yeah. like you didn't obsess trying to fit it into this 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 world of pretty code and and you know <laughs> domain driven design and whatever buzzword you want to throw out there. Um, you delivered value, and it works, and you don't have to worry about it until you need to iterate on it again, right? Okay, now. Now someone wants to add this. Okay, maybe now we we clean it up a little bit because because it it it's going to provide more value now. Um, so you know, I would caution against people being uh, afraid to write ugly code or or giving themselves a hard time about it. <laughs> well, and even I can say it honestly. I've seen it. In, I've seen organizations move around and people come and go, and it's normal, right? And so you fire, you hire the greatest developer, and you we tout their code, and they create great products, and it works. And then the next developer will come in, and they're gonna be like, "Who wrote this?" Like, and they they will then start to have to you know back into a bunch of weird code because it's there's there's personalization that makes its way into the way we write code, and so no matter how good it is, somebody else will either, will be different enough that it may seem better, but it's just yeah. different. Uh, <laughs> right, right. I mean, you know, uh, is it, don't over-engineer something if if a simple if then else statement will, will, will work, right? Because right? that's gonna be easy for anyone to look at and understand what's happening, right? I laughed at it. I talked to uh, Brian LaRue, if, is in your, if you're in the Ruby on Rails community, you may have bumped into Brian along the way somewhere. Uh, and fantastic Rails developer is a company called Begin, uh, works in the serverless frameworks uh, on, okay. on AWS, really cool. And it was funny, he's like, I look back on code that I wrote six months ago, he's like, I'm horrified. I don't even know who wrote it sometimes. He's like, that's kind of how it should be, is that you should be a little, You should it should get the thing done. And then as you get better, maybe you go back and clean some stuff up, he says, but you should always be a little, you should just be learning and adapting and growing. But getting the thing done like you know the mvp the the v is the important part it's viable it does something right. <laughs> right. achieves the result yeah yeah ab absolutely and you don't uh, circling back to to university training you don't need that <laughs> you know yeah. you just need to know the bare minimum to make something work and provide business value and you're going to iterate and you're going to be iterating on your own knowledge as you go and as you as you're actually building something that's in people's hands that they're using. Um, there, I, there's no better classroom than that. So what is a moment where you questioned, you really questioned whether you were doing the right thing? 
in my company? Yeah, as I I know, given the way you describe yourself, <laughs> you you are as you've got a very good introspective ability, probably too good that I would say at some <laughs> point along the way you probably thought okay, am I heading in the right direction? I'm just curious when it's happened and and how you got through it. Yeah, so I, I would say after 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 one year, um, after one year of uh, coding in my spare time on Fermentable, I got it to a point where I was able to put put it into some breweries' hands, um, and that felt great. It was scary at the same time, uh, and they and and they liked it. Um, there was a lot of positive feedback, but there was also about ten pages of feature requests, right? <laughs> yeah. and so I was like, I can't. I can't do this by myself, <laughs> right? Yeah. Uh, so I brought on a co-founder. Um, his name is uh, Frank West. He was a part of a Ruby community um, uh, in, in Fresno, uh, where I kind of came up as a Rubyist. Um, and he was also a home brewer. Uh, so we had a lot in common. Um, and, and he seemed excited to work on it. And so I brought him on as a co-founder because we really even though it was founded, it wasn't really founded yet. <laughs> yeah, yeah. <laughs> um, and so, uh, so two, fast forward two years of having him on board, uh, and but me being the one that kind of lured him in, so to speak. Um, I think we had about ten paying customers in two years. You know, two years of uh, not full time effort, but pretty good effort on both of our parts and. And we and we had about ten customers, and I was just like, "What are we doing? Like, what am I doing to him and his family? Right? <laughs> like, I drug him into this thing. Like, we are legally, <laughs> you know, bound to this company, um, even though it's an LLC. It's a much looser <laughs> binding, but it's still, yeah. you know, something. And I had a really, I had about about six months of just like deep reflection, you know, like, what am I doing? How, you know, do I just, do I just quit? Do I just throw the towel in? Because we only have 10 customers, you know, like, it'll be disappointing for them, but what are you going to do? You know, companies fail, right? Right. Um, or do we keep grinding? And I, I just, like, I, I had to do a lot of soul searching. Like, like, you know, is this the thing I want to keep doing? And, yeah, I, I can't tell you what what got me through it and and where the decision was made because again, like it was a good solid six months of me. Like we didn't really work on the product at all; we just kind of maintained it. And uh, for some reason, the beginning—actually, I do know what it is—and I don't know why it happened. <laughs> so this was about three years ago, the beginning of the year, the month of January and February. We brought on like. 25 new customers all at once. They just like came out of the woodwork and I was like, Oh my God. Wow. <laughs> <laughs> and that kind of got us excited again. It got us building new features again. And, uh, we've been on a slow, but steady increase ever since. Um, and then that's when the company like started making money and getting money in the bank, which allowed us to kind of, you know, go to, go to a conference go to the craft right. brewers conference uh, in Denver. Uh, we did that two years ago for the first time and made a lot of connections and started getting really excited again about the industry. And we were actually talking to brewers face to face. 
Um, and so that really was the moment. Um, you know, that was after about 18 months. It was, it was probably 18 months after I was first starting to think about just like giving up. Uh, and once we did that, that's when I knew like, there's no reason for me to give up on this. <laughs> um, I know I'm doing the right thing. Like it took that, that cattle's getting some money injected from new customers and seeing a constant slow growth and being like deep in the industry and talking to people, um, and commiserating with, with industry professionals, um, is what really did it for me because, you know, it, it brought back my passion for beer. I kind of lost that. Um, yeah. and so, you know, really getting in there, brought it back for me. And, and, uh, and, you know, I, at this point, uh, we're both fairly happy. We, we don't work on it a ton. Um, but we, we were excited to add new features when we do. And, uh, it's just slowly growing and, you know, maybe in another 10 years, we'll be able to re retire and just be full-time fermentable employees. But, you know, we're not, we're very much interested in the, uh, the DHH and Jason Freed approach where we're, we're happy to just kind of cruise along until we find our happy spot. <laughs> well, that's it. It's respectable. Yeah. It's, it's something that people don't often have the willingness to understand is that, you know, that peer recognition and like the, just being able to be among your peers is huge. Like that. I think founders, I hear stories like this all the time and there's a, a real theme to this. Like you get so wrapped into so much introspection that you, you just can't get away from it. And it's when you get out, I mean, even just as simple as uh, I was talking to, with somebody earlier about, you know, yeah, this, this will be my 163rd podcast. I think of this one, when it goes out and it's, I, I stopped at like 40 for about five months. And what made me, think about it was I just I'm like oh I should go and look up I'm like I think it's on iTunes for a reason I looked at it and I saw a bunch of comments and it said like I love that this is just like a it's like a hang it's like a conversation that I would love to be involved in and I was like oh man I gotta start doing this again because I'm ex like that's why I did this that's why I did this damn thing in the first <laughs> like and it's like you you need like no it's really hard to be completely self-sustaining as a founder in fact I think it's impossible in and that's getting out into a community, getting out amongst your peers, getting out and and getting that yeah, that real validation that people go like, "Hey, Darren, I I really dig what you guys are doing," and let's see if we can sign, get ourselves signed up. And like all of a sudden, you're like, "Man, that's right. <laughs> that's, that's why I'm here. That's why we did this thing." You know, that's why I'm. I, I forgot. Yeah, it's really easy to lose sight of of why you started it you know when i when i started it i had a very clear vision i was scratching an itch uh i was very excited about it um but yeah you know you get into the grind and <laughs> there's no business book about the middle I, and yeah. I, I i think this is the thing there's tons of books about getting started mm -hmm. and your first year and then you've got all these books about hyper growth and strategies that have been implemented by Reed Hoffman and, you know, Peter Thiel and Elon Musk. You're like, okay, cool. Love it. Uh, not mapping to my business. That's going to be a base camp style of growth, which is what I want, which is why I love, you know, the, right. the writings and readings. And you hear people that are in that space 
Like there is no room. There's nowhere. There's no library of our stories of like, right. Fantastically no, in the middle. I'll call it. <laughs> oh yeah. I would, I would be profoundly happy if, if we could grow this business to one to $2 million at ARR. Yeah. Like if, if we could hit that, like, I would be so happy. <laughs> yeah, I, I don't need any more than that. Like that would be a really sweet spot for us, you know. So, well, Darren, I predict that you're going to see that number. It's what? it comes from it comes from you. You know, it comes from your co-founder. It comes from why you do it, right? And it's my true belief that you know somewhere in the line between karma, science, and and hard ass work. Uh, it all comes together and, you know, you stuck it through and you got through that period and that's what will get you to that next phase. And I, I, I definitely see that, you know, what you're doing and the passion you have for doing it and the approach of you're mindful of the cost of doing it too. So you're not going to spend into growth and, you know, unless necessary, right? It's, it's a rare combination of, of a founder to be able to have the, what you've got. And, uh, you know, for, I don't, I don't know the official word, we call it stick to but like just be willing <laughs> to, you know, keep going and, yeah, and do yeah. it because you love it. Per persistence and patience. Those are, yeah. the, those are the two things. <laughs> One day you'll, you will be looking back and it is going to be, uh, we'll call it all. It'll be my, my path. Two to two million ARR by Darren. Hayden. There you go. There you go. <laughs> <laughs> All right. Yeah. Well, we're going to sign the book deal. <laughs> the long path to overnight success, which is also what I I really that's despise. that's great. I like that. <laughs> the long path to overnight success. That's. <laughs> I've seen you know when we read these books and hear these stories. And you, you see, like, of course we have to take out all the unexciting stuff and all the really hard stories and get to the, like, you know, really neat things, you know, chaos monkeys, like fantastic stories and fantastic people that have done these things. But that's what people think that running a company is. It's that it's an eight chapter book that has a happy ending. <laughs> yeah. Right. And, and, and everyone on the outside just sees the conclusion, right? Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, yeah, they so. just see it as building towards an exit, and that's the other thing too. You know, when you talk about taking on funding, the reason why those people will invest is because they see an exit. They're not in it like Warren Buffett for the long game. They're in it right. for the life of the fund, which has a ten-year span. <laughs> yep, that's totally right. Yeah. yeah. So. If anybody needed advice on why not to take on venture funding, read his Secrets of Sand Hill by Scott Cooper. <laughs> Cuz oh. he's very open about why it's a it's a tough thing and the responsibility you have in taking it on and Scott of course is from, you know, sort of the OG of Sand Hill Road venture capitalists. Uh really really well done book. Uh and yeah, like the moment I I read through it I was like I'm never taking on venture funding if I start my own company. <laughs> <laughs> well, I've already thing. made that. I've already made that decision, but uh, I could always use more validation on the subject. Yeah, so yeah, I'll, I'll definitely check that one out. <laughs> Darren, this is fun. I really uh, thank you very much for sharing all these uh, you know, good insights, and uh, I really truly want to see the the success of Fermentable and and you and the team. This is going to be neat to see and. Like I said, we'll have you back on when you when you crack that two million. But in the meantime, like I said, you know, thank you for really being open about 
you know, the, the neatness of it. And also for unpacking the brewing industry, which is uh, something we don't get a chance to do often. Yeah. Yeah. Eric, thanks for having me. It was, it was a blast and uh, glad we got to talk about beer. That's it. Yeah. <laughs> Somewhere amongst all this, we got to talk a bunch about beer. And so for, there you go. People got to learn about what, why we call it an IPA. So awesome. Yeah. Well, Darren, so uh, if people want to reach you, what's the best way uh, online or, or in other ways that they can get a hold of you? Yeah, online, uh, www.getfermentable.com. Um, uh, you can email me directly at Darren, D-A-R-I-N, at getfermentable.com. Uh, we can answer uh, any questions you have um, about the brewing industry, or if you need some software, we're happy to help you out. Um, or if you just want to chat uh, technology, I'm always happy to do that too. Nice. <laughs> so thank you very much for that, Darren. It's been a real pleasure. All right. Thanks, Eric.